Hey, Two Cities Church, Kyle Mercer here, and uh, it's Sunday morning, and uh, normally we are one church that is across multiple services and uh, in two different venues, but today, because of the coronavirus, uh, many of you are watching this in your pajamas, in your jammies, and so we are excited to bring you uh, a message from God's Word this morning, Uh, but we just want to take a moment and just say this, and I want to pray in a minute too, just to say this, that... um, we are in a unique season, uh, in a unique stage in our city and in our country where the church can really be the church. Uh, it, you know you know this, I know this, that everywhere we look, we, it feels like it's bad news. It's like, well, you look at the stock market, it feels like it's bad news. Uh, you go on your Facebook feed, it feels like it's bad news. You check your bank account, it feels like it's bad news. Uh, you go to MSNBC or CNN or Fox News, and it feels like there's bad news. And what the church can be and what the church must be and what the church has always been is a place where there is good news in the midst of a world where there's a lot of bad news. And so we're going to have a unique opportunity to bring hope to people. We're going to have a unique opportunity to have faith in the midst of a lot of fear. We're going to have a unique opportunity to have a lot of conversations with people. And so I just want to pray for us. I want to pray that God would use not just our church, but every church uh, across our city, across our nation, to bring the gospel to people in, in a unique season and stage of our country and our city. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just come to you right now in Jesus' name, and, and I pray for our church. Or that you would help us to be salty and bright. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to give light. It's supposed to give direction. It's supposed to give comfort. It's supposed to give hope. It's supposed to respond differently. And the way the church responds most differently is not when things are going well. We're grateful for that. But the church is brightest and responds most differently uh, when there is suffering, when there is hardship, when there is questions, Lord. And I pray you would comfort us. I pray you would help us to be the church in our city and among our family, and among our friends, and among our neighbors. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I went to India. I told you guys about that. I had an opportunity to be on a vision trip to India, and I was warned when I went to India. They said to me, they said, well, whenever you go, it's going to be completely different from anything you've ever experienced, and it's going to be complete sensory overload, and they were right, right? If you've never been to India, and some of you have, but if you've never been to India, it's like, well, there's no personal space. Uh, it's completely sensory overload in the sense that um, everything that you see, it's beautiful but also overwhelming. There are beautiful smells. There are not so great smells. Um, there, you are overwhelmed by the amount of people everywhere you go. And I remember I, I went to India, and the first day that I'm there, they introduced me to a church pastor, and I met this church pastor. And he said, follow me, and, and jumped on the back of his motorcycle, and I got on a rickshaw. And if you've never been on a rickshaw, what a rickshaw is, it's a golf cart on steroids, on three wheels, okay? And you normally feel like you're going to die the whole time you're in a rickshaw. Uh, but, but we got on this rickshaw, and we went down this street and this area, and we went into this very old building. And we went down into the basement of this building, and we went into this room, and there was five people in the room. And that was the church. That was the church. That was his leadership team. And then uh, the, the pastor says to me, in very broken English, this is my first time in India, this is my first time ever meeting him, he says to me in very broken English, what would you like to teach us today? And I just realized, okay, I'm teaching. <laughs> this is a very different culture. Uh, they, they have the same gospel. This is the same Christian church, but it's in a completely different culture. Why do I bring that up? Because what you're going to see today in Galatians chapter 2, what we're going to see is that the gospel is going to go forward, not just from one place, or not just stay in one place, it's going to go to every place. And, and I don't know if you've ever asked this question before. How did Christianity go from being basically a community group, right? Jesus is a a Jewish man who has 12 Jewish disciples. How does Christianity go from being 12 Jewish men to a global phenomenon? 
I mean, just so you know, um, Christianity is the most diverse religion that there is. Roughly 20% of Christians live in North America, 20% in South America, 20% in Europe, 20% in Asia, and 20% in Africa, roughly. How did it get to every person in every place? Well, that's what we're going to see today in, uh, in Galatians chapter 2. If you'll turn with me or type to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be reintroduced again to this guy named Paul. And let me just say this as, as to kind of catch everyone up. The Apostle Paul, it, it shows you that God has a sense of humor, because here's what the Apostle Paul does, or here's what God does with the Apostle Paul. He says to the Apostle Paul, you are basically the most Jewish person that there is. I mean, that's what Paul was. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. If you read Philippians 3, he's like the most Jewish person ever. And God takes the most Jewish person there is, converts them to Christ, and then sends them to all of these non-Jews. Paul's entire ministry is going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so if you, with that said, I want you to uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, then after 14 years, so a lot of time has passed by, and you might go, what was Paul doing for the last 14 years? Because uh, his life's about to get very exciting, he's about to go on a lot of mission trips. Well, here's the truth, uh, he was building a faith foundation, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but the way that you build a faith foundation is that you're faithful in the small things across time. Right? Most of our lives, it's going to be paying bills, loving our spouses, raising our kids, going to work, fighting sin. It's going to be very normal for most of our life. And then eventually, God gives us some big opportunities. This is what happens with Paul. Here's what it says. Then after 14 years, most people think that means 14 years since he became a Christian, he says, I went up again. So I, I can't get into all this, but this is his second time going to Jerusalem. He says this, I went up to Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Because it was the headquarters for Christianity early on, right? Every organization has a headquarters, right? Every, um, he goes to Jerusalem because that's where all of the leaders are. That's where all the apostles are. So here's what it says. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. So here's what he says. He says, I went up in verse two. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not uh, not running or had run in vain. So here's what Paul does, and th this is just a good thing to ask. Uh, he gets revelation from God. We get that now through the scriptures. He got it directly. Uh, he got revelation from God, and he responded positively to it. Isn't that an amazing idea? Uh, we, we, sometimes we go, well, how did God you know, use Paul so greatly? Was Paul some kind of superhero? No, I think what Paul did was every time God told him to do something, he did it. And that's just a great thing to think about in life. I mean, how, how do you do with that? I mean, do, when God says, repent of that sin, do you respond to it, or do you resist and rationalize it? When God says you need to confess it, when God says you need to sacrifice, when God says you need to give, when God says you need to serve, when God says you need to pray, when God says you need to share, what would your life be like? What would my life be like? If you were the kind of person that every time God's word said something and you read it, you just thought, well, how could I do that better? Well, that's what Paul did. So he goes on up. And here's the two things he wants, and I'm going to kind of summarize the whole chapter. Paul wants, and we'll see more of this in the weeks to come as well, Paul wants two things as he goes up there. He wants unity and he wants clarity. Paul is not afraid that he's wrong. You can't read Galatians 1 and think Paul thinks he's wrong, or Paul's wondering if he has the right gospel. What he wants is he wants the church to be unified, and then he wants the gospel to be clear. Now, what do we need more in our nation today, right? It's like we live in a divided nation. We need to be a unified church. We live in a nation that is incredibly confused about God, about Christianity, about heaven, about hell, about religion, about spirituality, and so we want to bring clarity and unity. So he goes up to the leaders. Now, here's what he says. If you go on, he says, let me read verse two again. He says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Here's what happens. Paul goes up to leadership. And he wants, he, here's, here's the question that Paul's asking, and this will make sense of this chapter, because you might go, why is this meeting such a big deal, right? Because we've all been in a meeting that at the end of the meeting we thought, that meeting could have been an email. Um, the, why is this meeting so important? Because what Paul wants to know, and this is such a great question for you and for me, what Paul wants to know is, uh, I know the apostles, I know James and John and Peter, I know they have the right gospel, but have they really thought through the logic of the gospel? Have they really thought through the implications of the gospel, right? Because it's many of you, if I asked you what the gospel is, you, might, you would tell me, well, you know, God made me, and I'm a sinner, and Christ died for me, and I repent and believe the gospel, and that's how I become a Christian and enter the kingdom of God, and that's right. But so many people miss the implications of the gospel on their everyday life. And what Paul is worried about, we'll see this in a moment, he's worried that he's going to take Titus up who's not circumcised, and that they're going to say something like, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, plus you need to be circumcised, which means that they're not going to understand the full gospel logic. Like, I'll give you a couple examples. Like, it's easy to believe the gospel and let, not let it touch our finances. But if you really understand at the deepest level that God gave his best, that God gave his first, that God gave his only, if, if that, for you, and, and, and if you realize that that's God gave his son, if you realize that that's, that's at the heart of Christianity, then you're going to, it's going to take time, it's going to look different, but God's going to make you into a generous person. It's going to influence your finances, your resources, your possessions. I, I heard a guy one time, he said, he said, we need to stop telling high schoolers that the reason not to have sex before marriage is so that you can simply save it for marriage because it will be better. He said, that's a, that's a common worldly logic to chastity. He said, what you need to do, he said, he said, people who think that way don't understand the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel says something like this. Do you know that Jesus Christ kept himself pure for his bride? Jesus Christ kept himself pure for you. And he's been waiting 2,000 years to consummate the marriage. And when you realize how deep the gospel is and how many different areas of your life it affects, it begins to touch and change every area of your life. And so he goes up to leadership, and, and we're going to see a couple things. First, he wants them to understand the gospel is for every person in every place. That's why this meeting is so important, because the gospel is for every person in every place. He's not saying the gospel is just for white people or just for black people. It's just for rich people or it's just for poor people. It's just for old people or it's just for young people. It's just for people who grew up in the church or just for people who didn't. It's, it's just for people with a bad past or it's just for people who've been a pretty moral person. He's not going to say that at all. In fact, how we know this is look at verse Three, or look at verse, I'm sorry, look at verse one. It says this, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Now, I'm gonna take a few minutes and talk to you guys about this because Barnabas and Titus are completely different people. So Barnabas is a Jew, Titus is a Gentile. Barnabas is circumcised, Titus is not circumcised. Barnabas, we'll see in a second, is rich. Uh, Titus is in ministry. <laughs> he's a church planner, he's a pastor. Um, Barnabas is older, Titus is younger. These guys could not be more different. They both claim to be, follow Christ. And Paul brings them both up with him to Jerusalem. So another kind of practical thing is Paul doesn't travel alone, right? There's not a missionary trip that Paul goes on where he doesn't take somebody with him, right? Why is that? Well, for accountability is one reason, but here's another reason. Um, <clears throat> the gospel needs to be spoken, but then the gospel needs to be seen. And the way that it's seen is in church community. So he takes them up. So let's talk about each guy. So there's Barnabas, right? Barnabas, his real name is Joseph, and many of you didn't know that because in Acts chapter 4, he gets the name Barnabas, which means encouragement. And, and the first thing that we're told about Barnabas, and this is really neat, 
The first thing we're told about Barnabas is that he sold a field. Now, it doesn't say he sold his only field. It doesn't say he sold the field. But So most people believe that Barnabas was a very wealthy man who he decided for the sake of the mission of the gospel that he was going to set an example. He was going to be an early adopter so that he could fuel and fund the gospel to a new place. And so he ends up encouraging many other people to be generous by paving the way, right? And this is the question we all have to ask. What should I do with what God has given me? You know, and it's not the same for every person, right? Jesus goes to the rich young ruler and he says, sell everything. Zacchaeus sells half. Now Barnabas sells a piece of his land. So the, the call is to generosity, but he ends up being this incredibly generous man. The second thing is, is encouraging, right? How many of you need encouragement? We all do. Mark Twain famously said, he said, I can live off of a compliment for two weeks. That we all need it, right? Because, and I've heard this before too, that, that, that Satan's greatest strategy is to discourage us. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, it's like, well, you're going to heaven, your sins are forgiven, you have the gospel, you have a relationship with God. What would he want to do to you? It's like he'd want to discourage you, right? It's like he'd want to discourage you in your marriage, he'd want to discourage you in your ministry, he'd want to discourage you in your parenting, he'd want to discourage you in your fight with sin. And so what, what Barnabas is, is he's a great encourager. Here's another thing Barnabas is. Barnabas is a bridge builder. And I can't get into this now, but if you go to Acts 9, and maybe you want to do that with your community group this week, if you go to Acts chapter 9, here's what's interesting. In Acts chapter 9, um, for the first meeting in Jerusalem, Barnabas ends up being a bridge person that everybody was afraid of Paul, and they thought Paul's, Paul used to kill Christians, um, so I don't know if Paul's really a Christian. And Barnabas was the first person to say, you know what, he's the real deal. And Barnabas was able to bring a Christian into a new environment. That's what a bridge person does. And let me just say, as you pray for our city, as you pray for areas of our city, college campuses, schools, businesses, areas, what, what, what people are, one of the things to pray for is, Lord, would you give us a bridge person? Would you give us a person at Wake Forest University or Salem College or Cook Elementary or, 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 or some na- or Buena Vista neighborhood, or West End, would you give us a bridge person, somebody who we could build a relationship who would help us to get into that community so that we could better love, serve, and share the gospel with them. So he's an incredible bridge person, but then Barnabas, and, and I don't want to tell his whole story, but he's not afraid to have difficult conversations. So we'll see in Acts chapter 15, he's not just a nice guy who encourages people. He's also, he has a difficult conversation with the apostle Paul in Acts 15 about whether or not they should take John Mark with them on a missionary journey because of because in the past, John Mark left them when they needed him. So they have kind of some conflict there. So even, even though he's an encouragement, he's not, diff- he's not afraid to say tough things. So he brings up Barnabas, then he brings up Titus. Now, what's, what's there about Titus? Well, Titus, I'll get to him more in a minute, but he's a younger guy, he's, he's a new believer, he doesn't have Christian parents, Paul led him to Christ, Paul's discipling him, he's about to head into ministry, Paul's going to bring him up to the headquarters for this meeting. So let's continue on. If we go here, it says this, I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running in vain. And then if you look at verse three, it says this, but even Titus, and this verse may not seem important, but this is the key verse. It says this, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Here's the second big idea. The gospel transcends every culture. The gospel transcends every culture. See, here's what's happening, and we don't even really fully understand this because we're on the other side of it, but in the book of Galatians, here's one of the main questions. Do you have to be Jewish to worship Jesus? How Jewish do you need to be to follow Jesus? Do you need to become a Jew in some way to follow Jesus? And what we see in verse three is Titus does not need to be circumcised. That was, just so you know, that would have been the heart, the symbol, and the main sign of being Jewish. 
And so they bring him up, they have a, a meeting together, all of the leaders of the church, and they realize it's belief in Jesus alone. Therefore, Titus does not have to be circumcised. And Titus is the most excited of all, okay? <laughs> Titus is incredibly excited about that. And, so he, and he is going to go forward and have a ministry to the Gentiles for the rest of his life. Now, on the other side of things, and this is an interesting thing, again, to look with your community group, spend some more time this week looking at this, but later, and again, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian, but if you look at the story of, of Timothy, Timothy decides that he is going to be circumcised because his ministry is going to be to the Jews. And so, you know, could you imagine that conversation? All right, Titus, you're going to go to the Gentiles, cool, okay, go. Uh, you're going to go to the Jews, and you're going to need to get circumcised. Uh, can I go to the Gentiles? Right? <laughs> that's, that's probably what he was thinking. Um, but the reason that he did that, the whole principle there, and this is an important principle, is that often we're willing to sacrifice we're willing to make hard decisions to reach the people that we love. We know it's not a gospel issue, so we're actually free to do it. Like, you know, a lot of people take, when, when Paul says, um, I became all things to all people, people think, oh, that's good, that's an excuse for me to be as worldly as possible. That's not what that's about. If you actually read what Paul had to do, in every circumstance that Paul said, I became like this person or I became like that person, what they had to do was sacrifice. And that's hard to do. It's like, you know, here's a really simple one. If you want to practice hospitality, it's going to be inconvenient for you. And you're going to have to decide, okay, if I'm going to, it might be a little missional moment for you to say, if we're going to have our neighbors over, well, let me go ask them when they're available. And guess when it'll be? When you're probably not available. <laughs> or it'll be during a special time where you're uniquely busy or you're uniquely stressed. And so what, what, what I've seen in every situation is the way the gospel goes forward is as Christians lay down their rights so that the gospel might go forward. So it transcends every culture. I want you to continue on and look at this. It says, verse um, 4, Yet because of false brothers, and this is a main theme in Scripture, main theme in Galatians, is that um, there is attacks from without, that's persecution, and there are attacks from within, that's false doctrine. And what this is, is it basically says this, not everybody in the church is a Christian. Uh, it, it, look what it says here. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, or literally you could say secretly snuck in, and it's the language of espionage, it's the language of spies. It says this, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. What is it saying? One of the things that hinders the unity of the church and brings the whole church into slavery is people who have their own agenda. People who come to the church and say, I, you know, there's, there's always a difference between the servant and the critic. The, the servant and the critic, they both see things that could change. They both see problems. They both see areas of weakness. The critic just wants to talk about it. The, the servant says, is there a way that I could come alongside and serve and make a difference in it? And so what we see here is, is these guys came in, they were, they were called the Judaizers, and they brought in, they had their own agenda, they had their own hobby horses, they had their own pet projects. And they begin to go in and they begin to teach this false doctrine. And Paul says they are spying on our freedom. Now this is so interesting because freedom, and, and I'm not going to talk about this at great length today because in the weeks to come, freedom is one of the main themes in the book of Galatians. But um, <clears throat> this idea of freedom is really important because as Americans, we love, probably more than any other nation, it's like, we're American, right? We're American. We, we, love, we love our freedoms. We, we, we love to celebrate July 4th. We love to celebrate our independence and our freedom. And here's what most people mean when they talk about freedom. They mean, I want to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. I want to feel however I want to feel and act on it. And the worst thing in the world would be somebody telling me that I can't do something. Which, I mean, I mean think about where we are right now. Why is the coronavirus... The coronavirus is multifaceted. It's scary because it really is something that could harm people. But for the average person who's not going to get infected by the coronavirus, what the average person just feels is, wow, I'm not, I don't feel as free as I once did. 
I can't travel as I once did. All the things, and, and you've all felt this to some extent, the things that were once normal for me that I just thought I could do whatever I wanted to do, at least for a season, I can't do that anymore. And that's really hard. So I want to talk about, because just briefly, what is true freedom? Because what Paul's saying, and, and do we really live like this as Christians? Wouldn't this be amazing if the non-Christian world looked at us and says, that's, a type, that's amazing, the freedom that they have. You know what I mean? Most, most, most non-Christians look at us Right? Let's just be honest. Most non-Christians look at us and think we're enslaved. And sometimes we look at the world and think they're free. I mean, if we're just really, I mean, if I'm being, at least if I'm being honest about that. And so I want to just talk for a few minutes about what is true freedom. Well, a couple things. First, it's soul freedom, right? The, 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 if you want to know at the heart of the gospel, what is it? It's that my soul has been set free. My soul has been set free from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the slavery to sin. That basically, what, before you're a Christian, you're only free to pick your sin. So you may get, well, I do what I want. Yeah, you're enslaved to something that you love. What happens, I, and I can remember this, I can remember I was 16 years old and I, and I become a Christian and I, it was like the Lord gave me completely new taste buds. It's not that I didn't struggle with sin anymore, but I had completely new desires. I had a desire to pray. I had a desire to read the word. It wasn't I have to, it was I get to. I began to be convicted first about my language, but then about other areas of my life. And it's not that I have to change, it's I wanted to change. And God, so that, that's soul freedom. That's one of the types of freedoms. Um, a second type of freedom that, that we have in, in Christ is emotional freedom. You know, Tim Keller talks about this. He says that what, what, what happens is when we don't have the gospel, we are given over often to guilt and to shame and to anxiety. And when we have the, and I'm not saying that, you know, we all struggle with anxiety to some, to some extent. But what, what I'm saying is that when a person comes to faith in Christ, they know where, what to do with their guilt. They say, yes, I, I actually can admit that I am guilty. I actually can admit that I feel shame because of certain things that I've done. But I actually know how I can be forgiven. But then here, here, here's the big one. And, and I, again, I, I'm only, this is how the book of Galatians works. You, you kind of, we're going to begin to talk about some things and then they'll be unpacked more in the weeks and months to come. But uh, we're, we're actually free from the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, that'll take a whole sermon some other time to talk about. But here's what that means. It means in one level that the law is not ever meant to be a system of salvation. The law is not a system of salvation. It's not, I have to do these things and then God will love me. Um, the law's purpose is to diagnose, not to cure. So if you, if, you, if you understand the law, what you understand is, that what the law tells you is it tells you that you're a sinner. It exposes your need. Think of it as an MRI. Think of it as a CAT scan. Um, you know, think of it as an x-ray. All it can do is show you what's wrong and what's on the inside. It actually can't cure you. I heard it said this way, that the law, for most people, people view the law as a ladder. It's something that I climb up. That's, how, that's religion. I climb up the ladder. The gospel is God laid down the ladder. I got on the train, <laughs> you know, and the Holy Spirit is pushing me to love. Because here's what you realize, that the, the law is the, actually the best way to live. What, what I mean by that? The best way to live is to tell the truth. The most full life is a life where we're not coveting. We're not stealing from one another. It's actually the best life, but it's not a system of salvation. It's a way of life that God gives us the want to by giving us the Holy Spirit. And the law tells us how to, to live our lives. And that's how that works. And we'll unpack that more in the weeks to come. But he says they come in and they spied on our freedom. But then look at verse five. And this just makes me, I don't know how you feel about the Apostle Paul. This just makes me love the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. I love it. 
Paul, I mean, and he says, here's why. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is a moment where Paul says, we were dead serious about, it's all about belief in Jesus alone. It's all about us being big sinners that are saved by even a bigger grace, and all we bring to our sin is our salvation. Jesus Christ fully and finally forgives us. And here's what he says, look at this. He says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. In the beginning of the verse, he says, we did not yield in submission at all. You know, the problem with many of us is we give in way too easily. We, 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 we give in, we don't stand up for the truth because the number one reason tends to be we fear man. The, the number one reason we don't say something is it's like, well, if I say the truth, I don't know what's going to happen, right? Telling the truth is an adventure in some ways. If I tell people the truth about themselves, about the gospel, any, any kind of situation, I don't know how they're going to respond. And I don't, I don't want the relationship to get ruined. I don't, want the, I, you know, I, I don't want to lose what we have. And so we don't do that. But Paul steps forward and says, not for a moment did I yield. And then I want you to see what happens next. Um, look with me at verse 7. It says this, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Here's the next big idea. The gospel is portable so that it can be passonable. The gospel is portable so it can be passonable. And yes, I did just make up a word, passonable, okay? Um, but here's, and this is another big idea that I'm gonna try to unpack a little bit and that we're gonna, you'll talk about in your community groups and, and, and we'll revisit. But um, every time the gospel moves into a new culture, one of the questions that has to be asked, and this is what the whole passage is about is, what was gospel and what was culture? What, it, what was the message of the gospel? What was the method that it was brought by? What, what was the principle of the gospel? What was the practices that were, were done? What, what is the timeless truth? What is the timely application? Uh, the, these are the kind of questions that are asked. And so they have this conversation where they realize this. We have the same gospel. This is so important. We have the same gospel, but we have different callings and different people we're going to bring it to. So what you see here, and you see this, is, is, is if you read verses 7 through 9, it's like a mirror. It goes back and forth. He goes, we're both called, we're both apostles, but I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and Peter is going to take the gospel to the Jews. And so for us to effectively take the gospel, what we need to do is, it, it needs to be incredibly portable. We need to say, what at the fundamental level is the gospel message? And we understand that it's Christ died for sinners, it's repentance and belief in him alone. And we don't want to say anything else as gospel. Now, let me tell you practically how this happens. The gospel struggles to get passed on in our nation, generation to generation, because we fall more in love with the methods that we got people the gospel than the message of the gospel. You know, I've told you guys this before, but when they brought pews, so some people think pews are more godly than seats. Well, here's an interesting fact from church history. Um, for the first several hundred years of the church, people stood during church worship, and when the pew was brought in, they thought it was ungodly. Because they thought, well, you can't sit in worship. You need to stand the whole time. And some people think, well, you know, the organ, uh, that, that is the true way to worship. The organ was taken out of the bar. And when it was first brought into the church, it, people didn't like it because it was an instrument out of the bar. And so if you understand church history, you, you begin to understand that we tend to fall in love with certain forms that brought us the gospel. 
We're not against Sunday school. We're not against hymn books. We're not against buildings that look very churchy in nature. But we don't want to fall in love with any of those past things that were means but that brought us the gospel, but they were not the gospel themselves. I mean, even a classic example for millennials is millennials fall in love with camps and conferences and retreats because it's how they heard, well, great. I think they're all great. I don't, we hope to do them and all that. But that's not the gospel. That was a means for you to get the gospel. And, and the gospel message, we need to be as, as clear and simple and precise with it as we can. So they're incredibly unified. They have different callings. Here's what it reminds us. It reminds us, and we genuinely believe this here at Two Cities, that it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. I, and I just want you to know that, that as a church, we are connected with two organizations. We're connected with the, the Pilot Mountain Baptist Association, the PMBA, and we're, we're connected with um, Christ Together, and we're connected with other organizations. And, and the reason that we do that is we want to collaborate, not compete. We want to cooperate, not compete with other churches because we believe that in every city, especially in Winston, it's going to take all types of churches to reach all types of people. It's going to take small churches and medium churches and large churches. Uh, it's going to take churches that are more seeker-sensitive in nature. It's going to take churches that are more programmatic. It's going to take deep churches. It's going to take wide churches. You know, and, what, and what I saw, see, when I became a Christian, I became a Christian at, at a church in Pittsburgh that would have been called seeker-sensitive. And here's what I saw happen all the time. People came to faith in Christ at that church. And then uh, they would, their life would be completely changed. They'd be there for a year or two. Then they'd get mad at that church that it wasn't very deep. And then they would go to a different church that never saw anybody converted. But it taught deep, deep Bible, seven years in the book of Titus kind of stuff. And, 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 I, and I went to the church that did the seven years in the book of Titus stuff, and they picked on the church that led them to Christ. And they thought that they were better than that church. And it's like, that church led you to Christ. God uses all types of churches. God uses all types of ministries. We understand here at Two Cities that we're, we're, we want to be the church for anybody, but we know that we're not ultimately the church for everybody. Uh, we're so, yes, as I said that right. We're the church for anybody, but we know we're not the church for everybody. And so what, what, what we see here is... is for the first time, and this is such an important meeting, for the first time what happens is the church realizes, hey, we want to be unified, but we don't want to have uniformity. And we realize that we need to bring the content of the gospel to many different contexts. And, and if you want to get better and better at sharing the gospel, and this is what I'm trying to do when I'm here on Sundays, um, this is what we're trying to do as a church, is the, the gospel, and this is directly from Tim Keller, but the gospel is most powerful when you understand its content the best and the context of people you're speaking to the most. So, you know, for, let me give you just one example of how this works in our, in our nation. Currently, we have to understand what people think about the love of God if we're going to speak powerfully about the gospel because people have a wrong view of what it means that God is loving. That, that's a uniquely American thing. People think that God just loves and accepts and affirms and approves and celebrates everybody. And the gospel is powerful when you go, actually, let me tell you this. God is love, but God doesn't love everything. There, and actually, hey, guys, listen, this is... For God to be loving actually means that there has to be certain things he hates. In the same way that if you're going to love your spouse, you're going to hate things that attack her or him. And so what, what, what is powerful is when we take the message of the gospel and we contextualize it. Uh, we don't change the message at all. The substance doesn't change. The style of it may change as we go to the college campus or as we go to another nation. And, and what's interesting is people struggle with this when they see it in America, but they never struggle with it when they go on a short-term mission cross-cultural trip. As soon as they go on a cross-cultural trip, they go, oh, they sing different music, the sermon is really long, or the sermon is really short, or they dress completely differently, or the length of service is different, or where they meet is different, or, or the illustrations and applications are different. None of us think that's different, but when, when, when a church tries to reach a certain type of person, we think it's unique. 
We think it's different. We think oftentimes people can think it's wrong. So, so there's a unity in the gospel, which leads to the last thing. The gospel gives you a heart for the poor. The gospel gives you a heart for the poor. And I, I want you to see this in verse 10. He says this, only they asked us to remember the poor. This is, this is how the, this, the unit, this meeting ends. They come together. They clarify, hey, we have the same gospel. There's not many gospels. There's one gospel. We have the same gospel, but it's, it's going to go to many people. It's going to go to many cultures, and it's going to start many different types of churches. One gospel. He says, they, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So I, this is such a great conversation for us to have as a church. What role does helping the poor play in the life of the church or in the life of the Christian? Well, think about this with me for a second. Why would the church have to say to Paul, remember the poor? I, I know why the answer is. It's because it's actually not the main mission of the church. The main mission of the church is spiritual poverty. That's the main mission of the church. It's that we want to see people go from spiritually lost to spiritually leading. That we, we want to, we, the, the early Christians, they were, the Apostle Paul, he was so overwhelmed, in a good sense of the word, he was so overwhelmed with the spiritual poverty of the people around him that the, that the other Christians had to say, hey, Paul, don't forget the physically poor. Don't forget the poor in this world. And Paul says, great, I'm eager to do that too. And so here, how do we say it here? At Two Cities, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And that as we're doing ministry, right in this passage, we see ministry, mission, and mercy. In this passage, we see ministry, the church meeting with itself, dealing with issues, praying for one another, clarifying the gospel internally, great. Then we see mission. Hey, you're going to go out to the Jews, you're going to go out to the Gentiles. Great. And then on, as you have ministry and mission, along the way, you do mercy. It's a commitment to the lost and a commitment to the least. Both. And I want to let you know, just remind you, because it's so important, this is why it happens in community groups in our church. Because we have, whatever it is, 55 community groups meeting all across our city every week. And those groups, they come together, 15 or 20, whatever it is. And, and they're doing ministry together, they're, they're, they're doing mission together, they're praying for each other, they're praying for their lost friends and neighbors. But then also, over time, they tend to choose, hey, what's, what's one issue of mercy? What's one... Um, Issue where we can come alongside the least to meet needs in Jesus' name. So we're just incredibly excited about continuing to do that. And we see that what happens is, again, it, it's, it's the gospel logic, right? We talked about at the beginning. It's the logic of the gospel. If you really understand, like really, not just, don't just say you understand it, but if you really understand, I was spiritually poor. Because, I mean, some of you will never be financially poor, ever. But... You can honestly say, if you understand the gospel, I was spiritually bankrupt. I was spiritually in foreclosure. I was, I, I was spiritually broke, and Jesus Christ came, and he met every one of my needs, and now I'm spiritually rich in Christ. What, what Paul is saying, what, what, what this is in the rest of Scripture, is you can actually not experience the gospel and not have a heart for poor people. And we don't know that it's difficult. How all, what are all the different ways that we reach out to them? That's, by the way, that's one of the reasons here we talk about we think through organizations, not situations. Because people's situations are unique and, and different and complex. And so we always partner with organizations that are like, well, you know, we've been helping the poor in our city for 35 years. Well, great. We want to we learn from you, come alongside you. Again, this is why it takes, that's a different calling. That's a different mission. And, and, so, and so we want to come alongside them as we do that.
So as, as, as we think about this together and as we close our time together uh, this morning, looking at Galatians chapter 2, it, it's a great reminder of this, that we want to be a church that is unified and clear about the gospel. That, that is our, our, our hope in our church is for the unity and the peace and the purity of our church where we love one another, we forgive one another, we realize that we have a lot of differences and a lot of diversity, but we believe, this is so important, we believe the same things about the most important things. That's, that's, that's the unity. And then we want to have so much clarity about our mission. What our mission is, is we want people to meet Jesus. We want them to be made into, their, into disciples. That, that's our hope. And so what we're going to do is over the next several weeks of looking through this book, we're going to look more into these themes of freedom, more into these themes of unity, and more in these themes of clarity in the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we just we want to pray right now that we would be a church that is unified. Lord, give us just, even as we're spread out watching this online in different homes and throughout this week in different community groups, would you just unify your church? Would we put aside our preferences for the priorities of the gospel, Lord? Would you help us to do that? Lord, would you help us to not have mission drift or message drift as a church? That we would genuinely be laser focused on the Great Commission. That what we have an opportunity to do, we are the only organization on earth that does this, the churches. We want to bring the message of the gospel to every man, woman, and child. Lord, and as we do that, as we step forward to bring the gospel to every man, woman, and child, would you give us just a heart for the poor? Lord, would, you, would we be a church in our city? Would we be a family or individual in our neighborhood who we are known? We are known for our freedom in Christ. We are known for our heart for the lost and our love for the least. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.